I have a question for everybody on the right. Why are you so fucking angry? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of The Mary Trump Show. I'm so glad you're joining me today uh, because on this show, we're going to be talking about everything from politics, popular culture, current events, and everything in between, um, and anything that catches my attention or yours. I'm uh, very much looking forward to taking your questions, so send them to the Mary Trump Show at politicon.com. That's all one word, and I'll answer as many as I can on every show. Before I welcome today's guest, though, I want to finish up talking about anger on the right. People on the right, and the Republican base in particular, are angry about wearing masks. They're so angry about being told to get vaccines that they refuse to, even though they're putting themselves, their children, and their friends at risk. There's a reason that people who live in counties that voted for Donald are three times more likely to die from COVID. They're also angry that anybody would restrict the kinds of weapons they're allowed to own because apparently that piece of metal is more important to them than the lives of our children, as they've proven time and time again. They're utterly enraged that the 2020 election was stolen from them despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and they stormed the Capitol to vent their rage, and maybe even murder the vice president and some congresspeople in the process. But the Republican base doesn't need evidence when lies will do. So where is all of this anger coming from? Honestly, I think it's mostly fear. It's fear that's stoked by cynical political leaders that keep the base unsettled and insecure about what they believe is their rightful place at the top of the hierarchy. In America, we've so thoroughly equated good and privilege and power with whiteness that some people would rather identify with slavers than risk giving up privilege they believe is rightfully theirs. That's the fear underlying the big lie that Donald tapped into. The idea that your white rights are more important than everybody else's. The belief that the votes of women, blacks, and Jews were allowed to count at all. The inescapable reality of the changing demographics that will render white people a permanent minority. And they know time is running out. But fear is a deeply unpleasant emotion. And Republicans know that. And over the last five decades, Republican leadership has become expert at stoking it on the one hand and transforming it into anger on the other. This makes it much easier for their followers to become comfortable with the cruelty of people like Donald, as long as it's directed at groups they've been told they should be afraid of. It also makes it easier for the Republican rank and file to be comfortable with their own cruelty. It feels good, and it allows them to delude themselves into thinking they have some measure of control because they have been granted permission by the powers that be to express their cruelty with impunity. And that's the cycle. Fear becomes anger, which enables cruelty, which engenders even more fear of the other, and so on. But it's utterly absurd. Let's start with some basic facts that might help clarify who really should be angry. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes. Because the inherently racist electoral college still exists, however, her opponent got 77,000 more votes in swing states, so she ended up being denied the presidency. In 2020, Joe Biden won by almost 8 million votes, and although he won the electoral college, the margin was only 45,000 votes in the states of Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. In 2024, Republicans only have to flip 22,501 votes in those three states. Biden's popular vote margin could be 10 million, and he would still lose. This is insane, but it also creates a situation in which it becomes much easier to have things go their way. They don't have to worry about the other 47 states at all. They simply have to focus on three. Just to give you an example of the danger we face, Biden won Wisconsin with 49.6% of the vote, but because of gerrymandering, Republicans currently hold a 61 to 38 majority in the state assembly and a 21 to 12 advantage in the state Senate. Beyond the undemocratic unfairness of it all, 
The big lie has created a climate on the right that gives permission to the anti-democratic minority to stack key election posts across the country with supporters who will have absolutely no compunction about challenging the legitimate Democratic wins, which even Brian Raffensperger, Georgia's Secretary of State, refused to do in 2020. And of course, he'll probably lose his bid for re-election. Then there's the Senate, which is split numerically, but the 50 Democratic senators represent over 41 million more citizens than the 50 Republican senators. Even with that massive disparity of representational power, this wouldn't be as much of an issue if the majority ruled because Kamala Harris, as president of the Senate, could break any tie with the vote in favor of the Democrats. But the Senate is not a democracy, and we have the filibuster, which gives the minority enormous power to block any legislation they oppose, like voting rights, COVID relief, and women's equality. We have increasingly become a country in which a virulent minority has an outsized voice and the majority, unrepresented and forced into a bystander role, suffers mightily in silence. The minority is always the Republicans. And then there's the media, which seems never to learn. We recently discovered via journalists like Dana Milbank and Eric Bollert that the media coverage of Biden in 2021 has been as bad or worse than coverage of Donald in 2020. Considering Donald called hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths, lied about having COVID, thereby putting hundreds of people, including the next president of the United States, at risk, embraced violent white supremacists, undermined the results of the 2020 election before a single vote was cast, this is pretty hard to take. What is perhaps even more galling is that Biden's lowest point of negative coverage in 2021 was lower than Donald's lowest point of negative coverage in 2020. Think about that for a second. It is we, the Democrats, the progressives, the moderates, who should be angry. And our anger is righteous, not based on manufactured fears, but on the very real fear that we are losing America and its great potential to be a liberal democracy. While it's true that we snatched democracy from the jaws of autocracy in November 2020, a rarity in human history, there is still a gun pointed at democracy's head. We don't have the luxury of being tired or demoralized, and we certainly don't have the luxury of letting down our guard. But man, it's a very long haul. So let's figure out together how to channel our anger into victory, because everything is at stake. Let's fucking go. I am incredibly excited, honored, humbled, to welcome my very first guest, the host of the New Abnormal podcast, a writer for The Atlantic who just started the absolutely brilliant newsletter, Wait What?, and so many other publications that I, I've lost count of them. Um, but most importantly, my very, very good friend, Molly Jongfast. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. Sure. I, I know that we're going to have to dig deep to find yes. things to talk about. Um, you know, I, I was hoping that more would be going on, um, but you know, you're 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 creative. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I in prepping, I was kind of mystified by at a start because there is. It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong. Every yeah. week, there's more than the week before. Is that is that your perception? You know, I think the problem right now is that your uncle. Sorry, not that this is your fault or anything. Um, well, I was Trump, born after he was, so it's hard to okay, see how so it good. would be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's not your fault. <laughs> um, but there was, it sped up the news. The Trump sped up the news cycle a lot, and so we had these crazy news cycles where you'd have a day or he'd tweet something crazy and then five other insane things would happen and you'd be like, uh, you'd have like a thimble and trying to catch a monsoon. But what I think has happened now, so then, and then Trump lost and that was like incredibly wonderful and we all took like a weekend off. And then the news sort of kicked back up in this completely insane way and I think some of it was Republicans like Mitch McConnell and um, and um, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, started 
kind of uh, seeing that there was a opening for malfeasance and got going with it. And the and Republicans have since then been pretty committed to consolidating power. Yeah, and that's that's actually not new, though. Um, right. I mean, there are a lot of unique propositions we're dealing with right now. But it is true that while we and the left seem to take things for granted, like, I don't know, the Supreme Court and democracy, for decades now, the right has been out there focusing on local elections, which over time give them power, give them majorities in state legislatures. Uh, you know, they've been expert at making their base care about the composition of the Supreme Court. Right. And it seems like they've train them to accept the kind of pushing of the envelope that we've seen, certainly with Donald, but, you know, plenty of people have been willing to uh, take the baton and run with it. So what do we... Mm, Go ahead. I would say it's worked for them. Like, what's been... It's really worked, right? Like, they have done crazy stuff. It's worked really well, um, they have been able to kind of get uh, what they wanted. And so now we have this problem, which is we have a um, we have a Supreme Court that is very conservative. And Trump has I mean, the thing that's amazing is like Trump and you and I both know this, Donald Trump is a big liar. So when he said he was the most pro-life person ever, like there's a 50, there was a 50-50% chance that he was just lying. But it turns out that on this one thing, he actually was going to install these pro-quote-unquote life justices, and he did it, and now we're going to lose Roe. Right, well, he was going to do anything uh, the Republicans power. required of him to stay in power uh, to keep the quote unquote love of his right. base. Right. Um, what what I continue to find mystifying is the fact, though, that we we haven't seemed to figure out how to counter any of this. You know, I, I mean, we forget a lot of us that the Republicans already have built-in institutional advantages, right? They have the Electoral College. Um, You know, they're able to get away with all sorts of gerrymandering and voter suppression. They have the filibuster, um, you know, even though the Democrats represent over 40 million more (laughs) Americans than the Republicans do. Um, And yet, uh, Democrats seem not to understand yet so on the one hand, we had 60% of Republicans believing the big lie. And something right. like, I don't know precisely, but somewhere in the 20s, some 20-something percent of Democrats believe democracy is in danger. What is, what is that a function of, that unwillingness to concede reality? So what I think, hap- what I think has happened, which is um, pretty unbelievable, is that uh, Republicans have kind of caught the narrative and they figured out how to galvanize their base. And even if they don't talk to everyone, they talk to enough people so that they can win. And what you saw, I mean, a good example about this is like Afghanistan. Okay. So the withdrawal from Afghanistan both Democrats and Republicans wanted it, right? Pretty much, I mean, this is the one good thing that's happened in the last 20 years is that Americans have become very anti-war. But Republicans immediately got on it and were like, we didn't want it that way. If Trump had been doing it, it would have been much better. Now, you and I both know it would have also been a complete disaster. I mean, look, no one is saying that the withdrawal from Afghanistan went great because it didn't. But certainly it's hard to see how a Donald Trump presidency would have would have pushed that along to be, you know, better organized. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what I think is important about it is that the right wing media really ran with that. So a good example is the story of the helicopter with the so there was a story that came out 
about a helicopter hanging a Taliban prisoner was early in the sort of Afghanistan withdrawal. It came out, and people were horrified with it on the right, and they just talked about it nonstop. It was in Breitbart. It was in all the different right-wing media organizations. Uh, Don Jr. made it the uh, made it the um, banner on his Twitter account. Right, was somebody hanging from a helicopter? Uh, a Taliban violently hanging someone from a helicopter. Right wing media went crazy for it. Of course, it wasn't true. Right, it wasn't the Taliban hanging someone. It was actually somebody fixing a sign. Right, it wasn't a hanging. They don't hang people out of helicopters. And this is no way a defense of the Taliban because I'm sure they're terrible. But mm-hmm. uh, and we know they're terrible in many different ways. They've killed right. all the feminists. People are starving. It's a fucking disaster. But the point is that was not true. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because they never. Reca- you know, we on the right, on the left wing media or the I I don't even want to say left wing media because it really isn't the kind of left wing media there is on the right. But in the mainstream media, the mainstream media said, this isn't true, you know, and there was Mm -hmm. a whole sort of, but on the right, nobody ever cared. So they just moved on, right? Because that's the thing. And you see that with um, good examples. You see that with Fox News, right? Like Laura uh, Logan, who had been at one time a very real and serious journalist, but who had been through a terrible, terrible experience where she had been um, raped and had a horrible experience in the Middle East and was ultimately kind of had some kind of break. And now she's a very um, famous right-wing conservative person on Fox. And so she compared uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci to Joseph Mangala. Obviously... Dr. Anthony Fauci is not a Nazi doctor, and Dr. You know, there's there's zero place in which this is appropriate or makes even any sense, let alone its disgustingness. So what Fox News was, they just disappeared her, and you never heard about it again. And that is one of the things that you see on the right media is that they just, it's over. They don't ever go back. And what they do on the mainstream media is they go in and they say, like what Brian Stelter did with Cuomo, he says, you know, We've decided there's a lot more transparency. And Mm -hmm. so that transparency is then used by right-wing media to say, see, mainstream media lies to you all the time. See, they said one thing and now they're saying another thing. Instead of saying, like, this is media accountability, this is what you have to do. And so what happens is right-wing media makes mistakes the same as malfeasance. Mm -hmm. So you can make a mistake. I mean, we're human beings, right? So, like, it was a mistake not to... Uh, not you know whatever it was a mistake that that whatever but they instead of apologizing for said mistake they just pretend it never happened and so that's how you see one of the many ways in which the right wing media has is sort of flooding the zone. Yeah, and you just described Donald's strategy. You know, you right. push the envelope to see what you can get away with. And if you can keep getting away with it, you push the envelope even further, right? Yeah. And when it doesn't work you pretend it never happened and you never admit you made a mistake. So I get, I get the, I, it's so cynical then uh, to use the mainstream media's willingness to own up. What I'm also concerned about though, and I think Afghanistan is a, is a good example of this, um, is when the mainstream media helps right-wing media right. uh, perpetuate false narratives because Nobody could have, end, wars don't end well ever. Right, right, right. So, you know, I guess you could make, well, you can't make the argument that Donald would have done it better because he's horrible right. at everything. It's really crazy. I mean. But, I, I mean, what could have been done differently? And for the mainstream media to concede that point without educating people, without putting it, things in the proper context, right. that I think leads us down an even more dangerous path because then there's no counter ever. I mean, the one thing I would say about the mainstream media coverage of the Afghanistan withdrawal is that a lot of people who who uh, cover Afghanistan and cover foreign wars became 
close to the translators, became close to the people in Afghanistan. So there was an emotional component that I think um, a lot of people didn't sort of qualify. And uh, I can understand, certainly with some of these war correspondents, I mean, there were people who had lived in Afghanistan or who had lived in in um, you know, in Doha and had spent a lot of time there. So I, I do think that there was there that there is an emotional component to journalism that we don't spend enough time um, thinking about. Yeah, and that that's obviously operative in uh, COVID coverage as well. Yeah. Um, because we're all living through it. You know, I have uh, friends who, who used to be colleagues who are currently uh, practicing therapists. Yeah. And they were, everybody they treated, they were treating for exactly the same thing they were suffering from, which is a level of uh, complexity <laughs> that, yeah. that just adds to the problem, right? And, and uh, you know, journalists, same thing. They're covering this thing that affects them uh, as much as, as it's affecting everybody else. And you and I talked a lot about this um, over the last year and a half, but I think we started talking about it in September 2020, you know, when we were looking at what, 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 what faces us as we were heading into the second wave of COVID. And yeah. now it looks like we're heading into the fourth wave of COVID. Um, and I, I, it feels like a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're never prepared, whether it's, um, you know, we're not prepared to take care of, of the emotional and psychological damage that's inflicted on people yeah. by a global pandemic, or um, we don't help people prepare for the fact. Well, you know, let me stop uh, for a second and ask you, ask this in the form of a question. Yeah. Did you think that things would get worse after the results of the 2020 election were called in Biden's favor? Um, I... No, no. I mean, no, I don't think anyone could have seen what would happen. I think that I, you know, I thought that before January 6th, we were leading to something bad because we, because, you know, we're all on social media, we had seen uh, and we knew those sort of bad actors that a lot of people who just aren't on social media, but read sort of mainstream media didn't know about people like Ali Alexander and Paul Gosar. And so I sort of thought these people are not taking no for an answer and that this could get ugly. But I don't think I thought that it could, that it would get as ugly as it did, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I didn't think that they would go all in on the big lie, though Looking back on it now is the only thing that makes sense, right? Like, I think that we were all a little bit um, too optimistic. Too optimistic, and I would argue beaten down, you know. Um, I mean, well, I think we thought it'll be over and then we'll move on, you know, which was not what happened at all. But now we find ourselves in this extraordinary situation where um, people, especially right-wing media, are using data like more people died from COVID in 2021 than did in 2020. Right. Well, yeah, right. that's because right. over 3,000 people died a day right. in uh, January. Um, but you know, using that as a cudgel against uh, Biden... And I don't know if you've seen the recent reporting by people like Dana Milbank and Eric Bollert about um, yes. the fact that there's at least as much, if not more, negative coverage of Biden in 2021 than there was of Donald in 2020. What do you make of that? It, it feels to me that it's, it's not just maddening, but it's dangerous. Well, so I interviewed Dana for the podcast for my podcast yesterday. I love Dana. I think he's a very good writer and has been doing this for a long, long time. The sentiment analysis is hard to really like we all know it's true that the coverage of Biden has been um really negative in a bad way. 
the sentiment analysis is hooey. Like, it's not, we can't, you can't really, it's not science yet. Like, there's, and, 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 uh, and Dana said this to me. He said, like, it's not, it's hard to quantify sentiment analysis. It's not, but for sure we're all seeing it. So it's not that hard to qualify sentiment analysis if we are all seeing what it is. But I would say the math behind it is a little bit, is a little bit suspect. So I would say the sentiment analysis is a little bit, uh, is probably not um, 100%. But mm-hmm. this, but what we, we are all seeing it. So mm-hmm. for sure, uh, I think that, I think that there's a couple of factors going on. One is what we talked about with the right-wing media, where the right-wing media is focused on promoting right-wing actors and denigrating left-wing actors. So that's, and that fills up uh, however much of a void is left when the mainstream media is not providing. So that's one thing. And then I would say the other problem is that there's a news bias, right? There's a bias towards news. You want news. And uh, the news papers are supposed to cover news. So the, you know, it doesn't make any sense to have a, you know, an article about how uh, everyone is so happy and getting along so well in the Biden administration, right? Like, we've seen there are very few leaks out of Team Biden, and and we know that Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, has been doing this for a million years and is very organized, and they get along very well, and there's not a lot of drama. So that's not a story, right? Think of how many... Hundreds of stories were written about Trump world's dysfunction and that Trump was going to fire this person and he was going to fire that person and maybe there'd be an ethics investigation of that person. So there, so you have a problem where you have these, you just have a news bias that is a bias towards news. And mm-hmm. then you have another problem, which is you have a... Um, you have a sort of a media that's not, you know, the job of the media is not to promote a candidate, right? The job is neutrality. And for and you and remember you've never had a free media in an autocracy. So you have media trying to cover something it's never covered before. And so that has caused a lot of problems and and that's where I'd say is how we got here. And now The new thinking, which I think is really good, which Dana talked about and Margaret Sullivan has been talking about for a million years, is that uh, Democrats have a a Democrats, that the media should have a pro-democracy bias. But again, that's going to make things hard. You know, you can't go from neutral to pro-democracy without some growing pains. So it's tough. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, Yes, neutralized to the facts bias in, in uh, favor of democracy, for sure, right. if, if for nothing, no other reason than self-preservation, right? right? But I think you're absolutely right when, um, especially between 2015 and uh, 2020, it was impossible to recognize the water in which they were swimming, you know, or, right. you know, what was going on with the water in which they were swimming. And you know, at their peril and at the the rest of our peril, because when you say the news, you know, it's the news and the news needs to be what they're focusing on. It so often, though, seems that the news is the horse race. Yeah, I mean, that is another thing. And, and I think like where people are getting um, people, writers are focused on for example, a great example is, and I wrote about this with, I wrote this piece about how I feel the mainstream media is not covering abortion the way they need to, which is that it's this, it's not a women's issue, it's a seismic shift in the way our society operates. Yeah, and, I, abso- I want, absolutely want to talk to you about that in, in a minute, because um, the piece you just wrote uh, on what's going on with abortion rights in this country is a must read. And I have, a, I have some questions for you it, 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 in terms of how it relates to what we're talking about right now. But I just want to go back for one second yeah. and, and, and kind of get your take on this. It feels like the media had a formula for 
handling elections and presidencies. Yeah. And for Donald, they completely recalibrated and changed the criteria and they changed the metrics. And then Biden comes back in and they changed them again so that it's not a fair one-to-one comparison. Um, you know, so maybe they're covering Biden the way they covered Obama. I don't know. But um, they're in that context, Biden is not going to fare well in comparison to how they well, covered Donald because of how skewed it all was. Well, what the, pro- the thing with Don- Donald that ha- has really, really helped him was that he got a lot of airtime. He got a lot of news. He made a lot of news. He was very good for ratings. And so it helped him a lot because what are you going to do? You're going to not have the guy who everyone wants to hear about on the news? I mean, you're going to not cover the president of the United States? I mean, it's an impossible situation, right? And so what they did was they, they you know, for a long time he used this media to get his lives going and to sort of grow his cult. Now he has a cult, right? So now he doesn't even need the mainstream media the way he did before, right? He isn't, he's mm-hmm. not on Twitter, but he still has his people, which is really scary. But so I would say that one of the things that's kind of happened is um, we've, he's kind, he's sort of doesn't, he's kind of able to communicate with the mainstream media with um, the, his people without the mainstream media. Now, I think what um, the problem with Biden is like the, you know, part of it is that he's just a very, you know, there's just, he's sort of a, again, news bias, right? So it's, and then he's not a gifted orator. So like you had someone like Obama who, he wasn't, there was no drama. There really, I mean, remember like the almonds and the tan suit, right? They married, wife, children, normal. No, I mean, no even Bill Clinton, right? No affairs. Normal, (laughs) boring. He jogs, eats almonds. No one cares, you know. (laughs) And good for the country, not so good for the news media. But isn't that, uh, is that new? Because news used to be, what's going on in the world that matters to people's lives. And it seems like the definition of news has become what entertains people. And that, that seems like a very slippery slope. I mean, it, it yeah, but this, we're already on it, right? I mean, uh, well, uh, yeah, I, we're, I think we're almost yeah. at the bottom I mean, of it. <laughs> and I think what happened with Trump, you know, was it was scary, but it was also like you, you and I both remember that the, the kind of, it, it drowned out everything else. Yeah. So you just had, you had, you know, you couldn't sell a book, you know, you couldn't sell a book about gardening because everything had to be about Trump. Uh, now we're in this nice period where it's not as much like that, but certainly it's very scarily bubbling under the surface. It's scarily bubbling under the surface, but I think it's also so locked in to how things are covered now that, uh, it does always, it does still feel like it's a never ending onslaught and we are completely bombarded and nobody can ever get their footing, especially after what for a lot of people, I mean, I don't think necessarily to people who were plugged in, even though a lot, even a lot of us were, um, if not, uh, completely mystified by it, but still shocked by the fact that things got worse after 2020. A lot of people were, felt like they had the rug pulled out from under them, you know? So, so there's no 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, January, 2021, and there's no respite. And yet, um, we kind of need to, we need to stay strong, uh, in the midst of all of it. And it, it seems like, the the things to feel demoralized by keep catching us unawares. And that brings me to your piece, because uh, as you know, the right has been going after a woman's right to choose since 1973. Yeah. Why did the media, the mainstream media do such a bad job of preparing us for what was happening? Texas didn't happen overnight. 
that's been years in the making. Yeah. And I think the fact that it w- came as a shock to so many people made the blow land even harder. Well, I would say part of the problem with the death of Roe is that, you know, a lot of times people aren't so interested in the federal judiciary. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to get people excited about that. So you had... Yeah. Uh, on the left and the right. So you had a group like the Federalist Society. And again, it's more complicated than just the Federalist Society. That's just, But, you know, you had all of these groups on the right that were, tra- you know, that were uh, sulking around Yale and Harvard and Georgetown and looking for conservative justices and putting them on a fast track and take and. And you know they're very good at um, at at uh, funding things like this, like the Koch brothers. So they, you know, they're they have these justices that they've kind of created, and it, it's like the right wing media now. It's these sort of um, very successful, very targeted. Because remember, the right, even though they advertise themselves as ideological, they're not really all that ideological. Because Trump, I mean, a great example is like um, uh, Mitch McConnell said that they're not going to release the party platform before the midterms. That's because they don't have a party. What's the party platform? Lower taxes for rich people. Donald and, Trump. And uh, are bad. bankrupting the government. Right. Um, taking away women's right to choose. Right. I mean, vaccines yeah, that's are bad. You know, children shouldn't wear masks. That's right. Your grandparents die of COVID. It's on you. It's basically death. Right. Death in taxes. That's that's all it ever is. So what, I mean, there's no, what is the policy? Drilling, Arctic drilling. So, I mean, there's, you know, of course they're not going to. And, I mean, it reminds me of, like, with Trump with the 2020 RNC platform. They were like, we're going to put it on on an index card. Because there's nothing to be on it. So you have a completely non-ideological party that just wants power. And then you have Democrats, which is like you have a completely ideological party that just doesn't want compromise. So you have people like, uh, I mean, some of the most brilliant and talented activists in the Democratic Party who have given their lives to canceling student debt or to making insulin $35 or making insulin free. I mean, these people are amazing. I I have so much respect for them. But, you know, they have principles. And so you have Democrats arguing about principles and policies, and then you have Republicans just taking power. I want to ask you about that, though. Um, What good does it do? to have principles that the other side neither recognizes or gives a shit about and to to sacrifice democracy for, um, I don't know, doing things the way we've always done them. It just, it seems very short-sighted and I find it impossible to believe that I know more about how these things work than somebody who's been in the Senate for longer than I've been alive, right? So how do we get, because I think Democratic activists absolutely know what's at stake here and have a very good idea of what to do about it, um, from voter suppression and gerrymandering to issues of choice at all the way down the line. Um, What do we do about the fact that um, the Democrats, and not all of them, but enough of them, don't seem to understand the danger we're facing? Is it just because they're trapped in the myth of collegiality? Uh, I think that there are two big, the biggest problem that Democrats have, which they, which they have told me, which is, you know, they'll constantly tell me, um, elected Democrats will tell me this incredibly stupid thing, which is they'll say, we, uh, we pass good stuff and then people will see it. It it is not true. It's not true. It's never been true. 
I mean, I, they've always believed it, though. So, again, it's like the Jimmy Carter school of policy. And um, a good, I mean, Jimmy Carter obviously had a lot of problems, and there was inflation, and nobody wants to go back to Carter, though I actually really, there were a lot of very um, impressive things about Jimmy Carter. But mm-hmm. um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, what happens is we saw this with some of the stimulus checks, right? We had Democrats pass stimulus checks, Republicans took credit for it. Yep. So... Democrats, if they don't get their shit together, but they have a real messaging problem. And again, they may be, you know, they'd like to, we'd like Democrats to cancel student debt. We'd like them to do a bunch of stuff, but they've already done a lot of stuff. They passed three major billion dollar legislations and people aren't hearing that. And I think that what Democrats greatly don't understand is that the news is very siloed. There's a big percentage in the American population that gets all its news from Facebook, from sites like MAGA123 or sites yeah. that put their news on Facebook. So you're saying news is really siloed and it, it's hard to get to people who uh, only want to listen to things that, and people they already agree with. Right. Much, and I also I think, think they're and they don't even know. So, for example, right. there's a percentage of the Republican Party that believes the election that Donald Trump won the election and mm-hmm. they but they don't believe it because they think it's a lie they believe it because they think it's true because they've right. been told it's true so right. the and and it's like the people who die of covid right they're not mm-hmm. dying of covid because they think that covid is dangerous and they want to die they're yes. dying of covid because they think the vaccine doesn't work and they think that if they take the horse dewormer or they take the malaria pill, they won't get COVID and die. And I think that that's an important uh, differentiation. It's subtle but important is that these people are not necessarily bad or even anti-democratic. Really, they just are so misinformed that they live in another universe. And it's funny because the new thing that I've seen on the right that they do now is uh, they say Democrats are living, you know, people who listen to CNN are living in a completely different world, right? Because they know that that is the ultimate uh, kind of way of sort of debunking this conservative news. And so they say it because it's all about projection on the right. And then they'll say it's all about projection on the left. I don't know how you unfuck this country. I don't know that you can. Uh, It is quite a conundrum. When you're constantly being accused of what they're doing. Right. And when you are dealing with a significant minority of people who, as you say, they're not trying to get... They're not trying to die. They're not trying to have their kids die. They're just listening to the people in power. Uh, You know, people used to ask me often, you know, aren't you angry? Don't you hate them? I'm like, they're doing what Americans are told to, white Americans anyway, are told to do since they're children. You put your trust in the people you vote for and you listen to your elected officials, whether it's your school board or your governor or the person in the Oval Office, right? So you can't really fault them, especially given how siloed the news is and how uh, not just unwilling people are, but but, uh, sometimes how impossible it is for them to gain access to other voices, right? And and, and it it comes down to exactly what you're saying. They're not anti-democratic. They've been told that we are. So aren't you going to do everything in your power to fight for your country? Um, when, especially when, you know, you're kept so ignorant about what's really going on. Um, I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would say is I think there is a fundamental issue, which I don't know that there's an answer to, which is that America is too big to govern at this point. Mm-hmm. And that probably America should be five countries. I, I, I know we don't like to talk about this because it's, scary and also because it's like crazy stuff that we don't talk about because it could be 
very, a lot of, you know, civil, nobody wants a civil divorce or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you do see there's a fundamental, and, and by the way, you couldn't do it because the way America is, it's blue cities surrounded by red land. So you couldn't, right. you know, right. you separate New York from Vermont, right? There's no, you know, there's no world in which that makes any sense. And, and a lot of people will be punished by doing that. But you do have all these problems of scale, Right. You have a you have a state like California that's the fifth largest economy and it's in a country. So in the world. (laughs) Right. You do have a lot of scale issues. Yeah. And and there's always the issue of there are blue people in deeply red places and vice versa. And what happens to them? No, there's Um, there's no there's no solving for it. I mean, but but it's a problem that shouldn't have should not have been allowed to happen. Right. Because of the inequities in, again, the Electoral College and uh, the filibuster and the Senate, the fact that um, a senator who represents like one-tenth of one percent of the American population has as much power as a senator from California who represents, you know, almost 40 million people. Uh, so those disparities, because they've always benefited the right and the right has never wanted to address them because why should they, since clearly their goal is perpetual, I mean, a minority rule in perpetuity, Um, you know, so we now find ourselves in a situation where six people on the Supreme Court represent the minority of views. Uh, I don't I don't know exactly what the stats are, but something like 60 to 70 percent of the American people do not want Roe overturned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this has happened because, again, you know, the way we we put people in the Supreme Court, the the way we allowed people to stay in the Supreme Court forever, you know, those all redound to making us less and less equal, which gets us to your latest article. because we are, that's in some ways, it encapsulates, uh, it's called the media is failing on abortion. And it's, it encapsulates both the um, incredibly dangerous situation we find ourselves in of having a, a very radical minority on the Supreme Court, in my view, mm-hmm. is making decisions that are going to affect us and our daughters for generations uh, our granddaughters possibly too, mm-hmm. unless we do something about it. And the Democrats seem not to have an appetite to do what needs to be done, even if it's unpopular. Um, we're also dealing with questions of legitimacy. Um, and then on top of that, and, and this is something that uh, you write that I think is is also really important because it, it shapes how people, um, how people process this and come to understand what's going on. The language the media use is, you know, in trying to be neutral. Right. Uh, it's, it's essentially um, the language they use is, does not meet the seriousness of the occasion yeah. Yeah. because this is not, uh, we're not talking about taxes here. We're talking right. about human life and are women actually uh, full participants in our democracy, right. or aren't they? Yeah. Um, so basic. So what I think has happened, uh, what I think has happened is that we have. Part of it is that we just don't. You know, we have had Roe for fifty years. So none of us have lived in an America where women die of illegal abortions. So we don't know what that looks like. At all, right? Right. Uh, Texas on September 1st overturned Roe, and they said they didn't, but obviously they did. And you you can't, now in the state of Texas, you can't get an abortion uh, if you are after uh, six weeks. So that's two weeks after your missed period. Um, uh, so that means 50, I mean, the, the, what, what I've read, uh, is that the first month that abortions went down 50% in the state of Texas, I would guess mm-hmm. that they're down more now. Yep. You have these women going to Oklahoma and New Mexico and Louisiana. Now what's going to happen 
when uh, in June, when the Supreme Court puts down this decision where they kick it back to the states. And and you've heard Justice Kavanaugh talk about it in the oral arguments where he said we could just go back to the states completely. Uh, that is, of course, the absolute thing that Roe was created to prevent. I mean, the thing that's sort of interesting about all of this is um, that Texas law is a crazy, crazy law, and it involves bounties and involves uh, deputizing American citizens to uh, sue women who get abortions. You well, then also criminalizing every aspect from right. the driver right. to, the to the person doctor, who knew about the friend who knew. Yeah. Right. To the girl who gives you Tylenol. So. Uh, the idea here is that they are creating new laws, right? Texas is now doing its own thing when it comes to the Constitution. Um, and this Supreme Court can't possibly want that because it ultimately, if Texas can make its own laws, California can make its own laws. And right. everyone can make their own laws. And why even have a Supreme Court if everyone can make their own laws? So the minute that this Supreme Court refused to intervene in the Texas law. They said, if you make laws we like, we won't give you a hard time about it. Uh, this is a very slippery slope. And maybe <laughs> they only do this for abortion, which in which case they're humongous hypocrites and misogynists. Or maybe they go and let uh, states do whatever they want. But the precedent there is completely insane. What I think, and I think legal scholars, lawyers, journalists were all pretty shocked when that happened because uh, news has a bias towards norm, you know, it has a bias towards wanting news, the activities, but it also has a bias towards uh, a belief that that people will ultimately do what is expected. And that's not what happened here. Um uh, now you have – so what will happen is you'll have these states that have these trigger laws. I think it's 12 states have trigger laws. And there are a lot of them are states around Texas. And then mm-hmm. there are like – I mean I wrote about this map that the New York Times had that said uh, decrease in legal abortions, which again – this map serves no one. Decrease in legal abortions. What the fuck does that even mean, right? Right. It means right. places where you're not going to be able to get an abortion. And that's what it means. So uh, so that will be uh, deserts, right? It'll be Texas. It'll be Mississippi, Mississippi, Alabama. Oklahoma, Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina. I mean, this map had Florida as a place you'd get abortions. I can't imagine a world where Ron DeSantis is like, yeah, we're going to let it. people come I, and get abortions. I can't but, either. Yeah. And, and that is a fundamental, I, besides the horror of it and the insanity of it and the cruelty and the misogyny and, and the fact that we're fight, we keep having to fight this fight, uh, which is, um, I don't know, demoralizing isn't strong enough a word, yeah. is the fact that journalistic neutrality by definition doesn't allow for appropriate coverage. <laughs> you know, you, you, you uh, talk about the antiseptic language um, of saying decl- predicted decline in legal abortions. No, right. <laughs> it's not what's going on because we're not talking about uh, the inability to get a medical procedure. We're talking about being forced into a life you don't want, can't afford, or physically or, you know, psychologically incapable of choosing for yourself. Yeah. And I also think even more than that, it's a question of you, we have a, we are in a country, uh, we don't know what it looks like. I mean, so what I would say is like, what we, what I would have liked to have seen and what I wish I had seen uh, is people down, and, and we saw some of it, like with The Daily, there was an incredible episode of The Daily where they went to this abortion clinic and they interviewed the providers and they interviewed the women. With abortion, there's the issue of privacy, right? And there are a lot of people who get abortions. I mean, the thing that a lot of abortion activists don't, so one of the things that I think of Bill Clinton, this is just my opinion, and it is solely my opinion, and it runs contrary to what a lot of abortion activists feel. But 
I think that one of the things that that uh, a lot of people were able to get on board with was Bill Clinton's safe, legal, and rare, right? The idea was because, and, and I talk about this in the piece, if you can get birth, you know, Colorado was able to really cut down on their abortions by doing uh, free IUDs to women who uh, have, you know, are from lower income uh areas and then birth control pills and birth control pills that can be prescribed by pharmacies and uh, more sex ed. These are the ways to cut down on abortion. It's not this again. None of this is about cutting down on abortion. It's about taking away choices from women. Exactly. Because as you You other people point out, there's no such thing as getting rid of abortion. You just get rid of abortion for poor women. And, and, and And it's also like there are ways in which you can reduce abortion and we know what they are and it's easy and it's cheap. And that's not what this is about. Uh, this is about control and power and, and, uh, you know, uh, and something that the right gets very excited about. So, um, what happens, what I think, um, it has happened is a lot of activists talk about, you shouldn't stigmatize abortion, but, most people get abortions because things are not going the way they want them to, right? right? It's not something you do. I mean, maybe there's someone, but the the right wants people to think that these people are using birth uh, adoption adoption abortion as birth control. I'm here to tell you that is not what's happening. These people are doing it, and if you read the statistics, one in four American women have had an abortion. That's 25 percent. Now. Uh, these women are not, you know, most of these women are already mothers, right? Not, you know, not all of them. And there certainly are children who have been sexually assaulted or raped, who have been raped, children who have been raped or, or, or um, you know, have had, um, you know, a, a, are pregnant by incest. I mean, there are a lot of really, this is, these are not happy stories. People don't go to get abortions because things are going well. And uh, I think ultimately there's not enough focus on that this is we need to make this available for women, not because it, the mood strikes them, but because this is, you know, emergency needed healthcare. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I don't have a problem with safe, legal and rare because I, I, I guess it gets misinterpreted as it's a bad thing. But no, like why? I mean, the. the what we should be doing is making birth control available so people don't have, because, you know, abortion's a medical procedure too, so why yeah. not avoid that as well? Yeah. What I find kind of stunning is that even if you believe that a lot of people get abortions in place of birth control, which, as you say, is absurd, although right. I'm sure it happens, but none of my fucking business, right. fine, if, that, you know, if that's what you need to do. But that that's worse for some people than an actual medical doctor saying that if a nine-year-old is mature enough to get pregnant, oh, yeah, that then that cool. nine-year-old should carry that baby to term. That is how, is, how is it that that's an okay argument uh, and that's more compelling for people than the opposite? I, I, I that's mean, where I kind of get hung up. What's, an, it, what's interesting about that is that's a doctor for for um, obstetrician for life for some crazy organization. I mean, that is a great example of how the right is very galvanized, right? You've got, they've got these doctors who are willing to defend anything. Now, you see on the left, uh, if the left were like the right, the left would be uh, having would you would see that clip a million times a day. You would see the clip of that doctor saying that if a nine-year-old can menstruate, she can carry her father's child. I mean, a million times a day because it's so disturbing and because it's child abuse. It is, nine-year-olds should not carry children just because you don't believe uh, you don't believe that, uh, you don't, you believe that a blastocyst is a human life. I mean, it's preposterous. And, um, one, and that's really where the left has failed. Yeah, it is. I, I think at this point, it is probably the most troubling context in which, um, Republicans have successfully co-opted language and, uh, the left has failed miserably because as Ellen 
Willis said, the central question in abortion, in the abortion debate, isn't whether a fetus is a person, but whether a woman is. Yeah. Um, and by allowing the right, one, to label themselves pro-life, which is the most obscene thing we can imagine at this point, because they're clearly pro-death, except in the case of a blastocyst, and right. to refer to blastocysts as babies, unborn right. children, right. you know, that, that makes it really hard to, to get back... Uh, the real estate on the issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this what I mean, I know we covered a lot of kind of grim territory, but, uh, you know, it's always my belief that we need to face things fair, uh, squarely well, in the face. We have right. To. So yeah. we know what we're facing and what we're up against so we can uh, regroup uh, to fight another day. So um, where can we find you on uh, Twitter? It's called, um, you can find me on Twitter the, at Molly John Fast. Uh, you can find my uh, newsletter at The Atlantic. Wait, what? on the Atlantic and uh, you can um, uh, find my podcast at the Daily Beast. And I strongly encourage everybody to check out all of the Molly's Twitter is one of the best Twitter accounts out there. Seriously. Uh, So go follow her, her her newsletter. Her new newsletter is extraordinary. The Daily Beast, uh, uh, new abnormals, one of my favorite podcasts and it has been since it came out. Um, and you also still write for other publications too. Mm-hmm. So I, I highly well. recommend that anytime Molly comes out with uh, something, <laughs> no matter where it is, because uh, she helps keep me sane oh, uh, thank you, and friend. grounded. So again, I'm so grateful that you were here today. It's, it's meant the world to me. Thank you for having me and congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. All right. Stay safe. Okay. I'm really happy every week to uh, do a Q&A with um, listeners who sent in questions ahead of time because your, your opinions and your thoughts about what's going on are, are so important. Uh, so, again, if you do have any questions you want me to answer, send, send them to one word, the Mary Trump show at Politicon.com. I'll get to as many as I can uh, today. The first question is from Aisha in Brooklyn, New York City. And she writes, with the upcoming vote on Build Back Better agenda, should we be supporting it or pushing for more progress? Is there a role for people on the left to say no in favor of stronger legislation? Um, As for the second part of that, I think it it depends entirely on the whip count. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the best speaker of the House in modern history, so I'm sure she has a very, very clear idea of what the vote is. And if there is room for um, the more progressive among us uh, to vote against the bill, just to make a statement to their constituents and to stake out future territory, uh, then I think that's completely in bounds. However, um, especially in the Senate, but even the House, the margins are so small And uh, in the Senate, we can't necessarily even count on um, all of the Democratic senators to do the right thing. I think we need to vote on the best possible version of Build Back Better we can get, uh, because even that is disappointing as it might be for some of us who thought that it should be $10 trillion instead of 1.8 or whatever it's going to end up being. It's so much better than nothing. Uh, we just need to get it done. The American people are suffering. They need help. And the Democrats are the only party who, who want to help them. Okay, this question is from, I, sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, Niha in San Francisco, California, who, who asks, what is most effective in the current climate, activism, journalism, or legislation? Um, you know, I think there's always a place for activism, um, as, as you may have heard <laughs> during my conversation with Molly, I'm a little worried about the state of uh, journalism, but, you know, there are incredible journalists out there. Uh, I think, though, um, we need leg- legislation is, is the only thing that's, that's going to get us out of the mess we're in. Um, activism is, is, is incredibly important because we may need to make sure that the Democrats stay, uh, stay in control of the House and the Senate 
so again, all of those things, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, and very often they impact each other and yet we don't have to choose. So why should we? We, we need to encourage however that's possible, a journalist to, to, again, be neutral as to the facts, but always be biased towards democracy. Uh, we need our activists to motivate uh, voters to um, pressure legislators to do the right thing. And obviously, we need our uh, legislators to uh, make sure that they're passing laws that are going to help the most people as much as possible. The last question is from Britt in Austin, Texas, who asks, what is the biggest source of inequity in our system today, and what can the average person do to start fixing it? Um, I actually just read an entire book about this called The Reckoning. The biggest problem that exists in America is the same problem that has always existed in America, and it's racism. Um, America is a racist country. I don't say that to be incendiary or to upset anybody. It is just factually true. Uh, so what the average person can do is, uh, you know, if the average person is offended by that or takes issue with that, then maybe take a minute and figure out why that might be. Um, because if we resist that, then we resist doing anything about it. And we need to. It's time to look that issue in the face and recognize that by continuing to put it off or continuing to not deny it, we're just perpetuating it. And under those circumstances, there will never be equality for all people in America. And our goal should be to make America the best version of itself it could possibly be. And that includes being a democracy for all of its people. That's it for today. I had such an amazing time um, talking to Molly. I'm so grateful that you guys are here. Please send your questions to me for next week's show by email. All one word, the Mary Trump show at politicon.com. I really want to hear from you because your voices are what matters here. Follow the Mary Trump show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and please give us a five-star review because it really helps other people find the show. Wear your mask, get vaccinated, get your booster, get another booster when that, that becomes necessary. And I will see you all next week. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>